The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Cool. Thanks for coming out, guys. What a beautiful uh, week we've had, right? Good grief. Uh, well, as those lights are coming on, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah tonight. Uh, how many of you guys were here last week? Okay, it's about half of you guys. Cool. We're gonna, um, for those of you that weren't, we're going to kind of go back over some of the intro uh, stuff that you're going to need to know about the book of Nehemiah, so don't worry. Um, how many of you guys were here for Amos, or at least some of Amos? Most of you guys? Okay. So Nehemiah, just so you know, Nehemiah is a little different. Uh, Amos is what we would call a prophetic book. Um, prophetic in nature, so sort of a lot of this is what God's saying to his people, and as if you remember, a lot of judgment, a lot of wrath, things like that, things to come. Nehemiah is a little different. Nehemiah is what we would call like a narrative book, so it's got more, it's more of a story. It's got, uh, uh, well, it's not a story, it's history. It's literally reads as history, so we're going to be looking a lot more at, at stories, which I think uh, for me are a little bit more fun to teach, uh, a little more fun to look at, so. But uh, just to give you guys a roadmap, Tonight, um, what we're going to kind of do is spend a little bit of time uh, talking nuts and bolts history. Um, so if you're going to take a nap, you'll probably want to do it in the first 10 minutes. Um, and then uh, it's not going to be a long teaching, and then I, I want to I get into prayer a little bit and talk about uh, three, uh, oh man, what is, my, what is my thing? Three principles of prayer is what we're going to look at. So I'm going to pray. Um, Super good to be with you guys. Super excited for Nehemiah. And uh, just good to study God's word, isn't it? It's so life-giving. Um, and uh, we just need it. So, Father, uh, tonight I'm thankful for your scriptures. I'm thankful for how um, powerful your scriptures are, Lord. I'm thankful, God, for how you, how you teach us, Lord, how you speak, how you... Um, move, Lord, in your church. God, how you work. Uh, tonight, God, uh, there's probably a mixture of emotions in this room. Some people are probably having a good week. Some people are probably having a really bad week. Um, but either way, God, I pray that you would just uh, penetrate our hearts with your word, that you would feed those that need to be fed. You would encourage those that need to be encouraged, that, uh, Lord, you would convict those that need to be convicted, God. Um, just, I pray that your word, that double-edged sword would cut sharp, Lord, and just remove the things in our hearts that might keep us from you, God. I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I kind of geek out on, uh, on the history stuff. I just love history. If I could do any other job, it would probably be to teach history, I think. That would be really fun. So what I'm going to try to do tonight is... Uh, basically preach what I wish someone would have preached to me and the way I wish someone would have preached to me uh, three or four years ago when I didn't really understand some of this stuff. Uh, Whenever I've tried to read the Old Testament before, I just, uh, it was really confusing because I don't know if you guys noticed, but the the Bible's not separated into chronological order. You guys know that? So that doesn't mean, that means that if you start in Genesis and you went in Revelation, everything is not going to happen in the order that it actually happened. It skips around. And the reason for that is because the Bible is organized into books based on genre. That means is that you have books such as we're going to look at here, which is a, a historical narrative type book where it looks at actual historical events such as Nehemiah, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Samuel, those kinds of books, Genesis. Uh, we have the law books, which is God proclaiming his laws like, mo- uh, like, uh, like uh, 
Leviticus and, and books like that. We have poetic books like Psalms and Song of Solomon and Lamentations and Ecclesiastes and that's sort of like poems. Um, so we have all these different genres of scripture and what, what happened is the way that the Bible was organized when they put it together is they put it together by genre, not in chronological order. So what happens is it gets really confusing. We were just in Amos, okay? That happened about 800 plus years before Christ. Well, we're just jumping about three or 400 years forward into the future into an entirely new story, an entirely new context of what's going on in, in Israel. And even though... Um, it's a little meticulous. I want to spend a little bit of time with you guys tonight, even if Jeff talked a little, about a little of this last week, which I think he did, um, trying to, to, to explain to you what's happening in Israel historically, okay? If you just turn on a movie, and every movie has like a happy beginning usually, and then there's this thing that happens about 30 minutes in where everything goes bad, right? And then the whole rest of the movie is them trying to sort it out, and then it's a happy ending. If you just jumped into the movie 30 minutes in, you'd be really confused, okay? You wouldn't understand what was going on, how they got there. So what I just want to do quickly um, is, oh, darn it, I forgot. I had a handout for you guys. I was going to give every, I totally forgot to grab it. Um, It was like this whole outline thing. Sorry about that. Uh, But what I'm going to try to do is uh, just walk you guys through so that we're not like jumping into the middle of a story. Does that make sense? Uh, Try to understand the history of Israel, okay? Um, So the state that Israel finds itself in when Nehemiah, who's kind of the star of our book, okay, uh, when Nehemiah is on the scene here, uh, the state that Israel finds itself is is, is the lowest point that Israel ever is at in their history, okay? Um, If if, if Israel was on like 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 a chart or a graph, this is the low point, okay? This is like the worst for Israel. In fact, if you want to read about how bad it was, you can go to a book in the Bible called Lamentations, and you can read all about, these are laments uh, that were written about how bad it was and how, and how rough it was for Israel, okay? Um, they find themselves in this really rough, really horrible state uh, point in time. Now, our character Nehemiah is not in Israel, Okay, he's not in Israel when this book starts. And this is review for you guys that were here last week. Uh, we pick up the story where he's actually um, quite a bit uh, of miles away from Israel living in uh, the nation of, uh, with, with Persia. Basically, he's with Persia at that point. He's, he's far, far away, removed from Israel. And he receives news that his nation is just completely demolished, that Israel has, has been uh, captive and taken away, obviously he would have known that, but that Jerusalem itself was, was actually, the walls were torn down and the city was destroyed and all this stuff. He, he receives this news and he, he has to basically decide what he's going to do with that. Um, now, if you look back, um, the this, this specific news, I, I, won't, I won't pull you back to what Jeff already taught, but the specific news hit him when, he, when they told him that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. Now, there's a reason why the walls of Jerusalem were significant. Um, Jerusalem, if you guys know this, but Jerusalem is literally like the beating heart of the Jewish people, okay? Jerusalem was everything to them. So when he receives news that the walls of Jerusalem have fallen, it's a big deal. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel uh, for most of the beginning of the nation, and then even uh, the capital of Judah when the kingdom was split. Jerusalem was where the temple was at. If you guys remember that, that's a big deal in Judaism. That's where all of God's people would go multiple times throughout the years to offer sacrifices, to worship God. Uh, Jerusalem was also militarily, it was a strategic place. Uh, It's at the top of a hill, which means 
that in order to get there, no matter what direction you come from, you have to go up, and that's an excellent place to have a fortress. If, if you look back through history, um, even after Christ, in the last 2,000 years, Jerusalem has been taken over and taken over and taken over and taken over and rebuilt and rebuilt because it holds great military, uh, military strategic, um, whatever I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Didn't have enough coffee tonight. Um, it's a great place. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants to conquer it. And if you notice, there's still a lot of tension there for, for a lot of those same reasons. So Jerusalem's a big deal. Nehemiah gets news that Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem are torn down and that uh, the remnant, the small amount of Jews that are still left in the nation of Israel are, um, are suffering or having a rough time and it weighs heavy on his heart. Um, having the walls of your city, if you don't know this, in ancient times, torn down was a big deal. It was a big deal because that was the only source of protection, ultimately, that you would have in a city. If you didn't have walls, you're basically out in the open. Um, it's also a sign that you have any kind of a defense system. It's a sign that you're even a city, is, is how your walls are built. It was interesting, when we went to Israel, we went to Jerusalem, so a lot of you guys went with me. Um, you go to Jerusalem itself, uh, a lot of the way that archaeologists know what civilizations and how old these places were because, were because when nations would come in and conquer Jerusalem, they would tear down the walls and rebuild new ones, or they would build higher walls on top of the walls. So what you do is you can dig down and dig down and dig down in Jerusalem, and you find civilization after civilization after civilization. Um, the walls of like King David and Solomon are like buried under feet, tons and tons of feet of, of rock because they would just build over the top. The wall that you see on the news when you see Jerusalem is act- was actually built by the Turks. That's like a fairly new wall, like the 1600s. So it's interesting, just every time a nation would come in, they would either build the walls higher, they would build new walls. But that's a big deal. It's a big deal for Nehemiah to hear that. So let's talk about Nehemiah really quick. Um, it says in verse 11 of our text, we'll get there, uh, that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. Okay, the cupbearer of the king. There's some language barriers, some contextualization I have to do here, but what that essentially means is that he was the one that tested the wine for the king to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So anytime before the, the king was about to take a drink, he would try it and make sure he's not dead. If he's not dead, the king can drink his wine. That was Nehemiah's job. Uh, to attain to that position, by the way, as a foreigner and most likely at some point a slave, uh, a Jewish person, to, to attain to that position, that point in a Persian uh, Gentile civilization is kind of extraordinary that Nehemiah got to that place. Um, it seems like a lowly job to drink the cup, but, but it's actually a, a pretty high up affluent job for someone to get uh, for essentially the most powerful man in the entire ancient world who was Artaxerxes, as we'll look at. So uh, that's a little bit about Nehemiah. That's what he did. Um, John MacArthur said that rebuilding the wall of conquered cities, which by the way, that's what they end up doing in this book, if you haven't read it before. Rebuilding the wall of conquered cities posed the most glaring threat to the administration of the Persians. So only a close confidant of the king could have been trusted for such a task. So the fact in the book was, we'll get there, the fact that the king allows Nehemiah to go back and to rebuild a city that has been conquered already and already been taken over means that he trusted him. Okay, it means that he was someone that had great favor with King Artaxerxes, this Persian king. Says a lot about his character, says a lot about uh, his position. So, what we're going to do is uh, quickly, I, I just want to, how did Israel get to this point? Okay, this is the, kind of the question. How did, if, if we're jumping into the movie and it's 30 minutes in, how did Israel get here? How did they at this point where, where uh, Jerusalem has fallen and where um, Persia and it has taken all these people captive? Uh, and if you look back about a thousand years ago, 
uh, not a thousand years ago, a thousand years before Christ, okay? A thousand years before Christ, you have David, okay? You guys heard of David before? Now, this was the high point of Israel. This was when Israel was the, the greatest, the mightiest nation. Um, David and his son Solomon, when they reigned, Israel was a united nation. It was one nation, okay? When Solomon died, things changed. Israel was split into two kingdoms. And now this is where I didn't get this years ago, and it was really confusing and frustrating for me because I, I didn't realize Israel was actually two kingdoms for the majority of their history. So after Solomon died, they're split into two kingdoms, kingdoms in the north, kingdoms in the south, the north being called Israel, the south being called Judah. And for the majority of the rest of their history, they're two separate kingdoms. Now, if you guys remember Amos, when uh, we were teaching through Amos uh, weeks prior, essentially, um, that was directed to the northern kingdoms. Okay, that was directed to the northern kingdoms. Uh, and God is basically saying, if you guys don't repent, if you guys don't come back to me, if you don't live according to my laws, things are going to go bad. You guys remember that? Um, that was about 800 BC. And guess what? Things went bad for the northern kingdoms. Just like God said. Uh, the nation uh, of Assyria came in. The Assyrians uh, led the northern kingdom captive, basically deported them. Uh, pretty much, I mean, we're talking 10 tribes of Israel here, all conquered by Assyria. Uh, Judah fared a little better. They lasted a little longer, but it wasn't long before Judah themselves too was led away captive by the Babylonians about 70 years later. So by the time you get, I had this, this handout that had this whole like confusing thing all laid out for you guys and you were gonna be able to look at it and keep it. So darn it, um, maybe I'll bring it next week. But anyways, so by about 600 BC, all of Israel has basically been led away captive. The nation is done. The nation's gone. The nation's scattered, um, just as God said that it would be. And then about 445 BC, 445 years before Christ, we step into the story that we're in now, okay? The low point of Israel, the seasons and the days of David and Solomon where Israel was this sort of superpower in the ancient world, that's over, that's done. Um, Israel's not even a nation anymore. They're just simply Jews, they're just people that are scattered throughout, much like they were before 1848, or 1948 when they became a nation again, right? Um, just sort of scattered throughout different nations, trying to live in other cultures. If you guys ever read the book of Daniel, um, you read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same story. That was the Babylonian captivity, same captivity here, okay? They were pulled away, taken out of their homeland, forced to live among the Gentiles. Um, Daniel... A lot of those people uh, fell within this story. Now, one last thing, okay? You can separate all the Old Testament books into two camps. There's pre-exilic and post-exilic. What that basically means is there was this buildup in Jewish history of God saying, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, it's gonna go down, you guys need to return to me, you guys need to repent to me. Those are pre-exilic books before Israel was pulled out of their nation and scattered all over the world, okay? And then you get post-exilic books, which are like Nehemiah, where Israel's been pulled out of their nations. They've been scattered everywhere. And now they're returning to rebuild Jerusalem, returning to try to get back to their homeland. So books like, uh, for instance, Daniel, those are post-exilic books. They've already been exiled. Babylon, Assyria, they've taken over uh, Israel, and now they're just trying to get back. Books like Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah, they're all foretelling. This is coming this thing's gonna happen, you better watch out. Okay, does that make sense? So you can split those into a pretty big divide in history and that was when Israel was pulled out of their land. That's really confusing, it's hard to explain, but that's kind of what we're stepping into here. Now, having said that, I just have a few things um, on verses eight through 11 of chapter one, which is our text tonight. Jeff, 
left off right in the middle um, of Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah gets this news about what's going on back home. Um, it, it hits his heart, and the first thing he does is he, he prays out to the Lord. And we're going to jump into the second half of that. So I'm going to read the text, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So it says in chapter 1, verse 8 of Nehemiah, it says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant, Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hands. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, he says, I was the cupbearer of the king. So what I want to do is I just want to take this and just exposit it verse by verse. And I just have three points that I want to make. And those are all uh, three principles of prayer. So verse 8. Let's just kind of look, take a little closer look at that. The first thing that Nehemiah says in the second half of this prayer, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah is petitioning. He's praying to God that he would remember the word that was commanded to Moses. Now let me explain uh, first of all. Nehemiah is not asking God to remember what he told Moses is in God forgot, okay? Nehemiah is not saying, hey, God, do you remember the promise that you promised to Moses? Like, are you going to follow through? God didn't forget about that. God knows about that, and Nehemiah knows that. He's not saying remember as in you forgot. He's pleading God to activate his word. He's pleading for God to do what God promised that he would do. That's what he's doing. Now, he says, remember. Well, remember what? What is Nehemiah asking God to remember? He's asking him to remember what he commanded to serve your servant Moses, which is what we would call the law. Okay, Nehemiah is saying, Lord, remember the covenant that you made with Moses. Hundreds of years ago when Israel was uh, f- freed from captivity in Exodus under, uh, under Egypt and, 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 and on the Mount Sinai, God entered into covenant with his people, Israel. Now, The thing about the Mosaic Covenant, we talk about it a lot, but the thing about the Mosaic Covenant was a contractual agreement. Okay, what that means, what a contractual agreement means is that there's two parties and each parties have to hold up their end of the bargain, okay? So God says, here's what I'm gonna do and here's what I require you to do and this is the basis of this agreement, okay? This is the basis of the Mosaic Covenant. It's a contractual thing. God says, Israel, if you obey me, if you serve me, if you worship me, if you don't, worship idols and so on and so forth, then I will be there for you, then I will be your God, you will be my people, then I will win your battles for you, Um, you'll be the greatest nation in the earth, okay? Uh, But he also says, the other side of it, is if you don't do that, if you worship idols, if you disobey me, if you uh, don't be my people, then there's going to be results for that. We talked a lot about that in Amos, right? We talked a lot about the chastisement of the Lord. This was the basis of the Mosaic Covenant, a contractual agreement, okay? And so what happened was Israel did not hold up their end of the bargain, did they? And not just once and not just twice, but time and time and time and time and time again, Israel worshiped pagan gods. Israel forgot the poor. Israel forgot justice. They walked away from the Lord time and time again. So God delivered on his contractual agreement. He said, I promised, okay, emphasis on promise, I promised you that if you did not obey me, there would be consequences. But the Lord also promised them that if they returned to him, 
that he would restore them to their homeland. That was the contractual promise. That was the Mosaic covenant. So what Nehemiah is saying here is he's saying, Lord, you said that if we, were, if we walked away from you, you would chastise us, we'd be removed from our land, and you were faithful to, f- to fulfill that promise. And Nehemiah says, but now we're ready, we're here, we're repentant, we're humbled, we're scattered, <laughs> we're broken, and we're asking God that you would return us to our homeland. This is what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying, remember, Lord, your promises. Remember the covenant that you made. Verse, uh, the second half of verse 80 goes on to explain what the Lord said. He said, in verse 8b, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So quoting there God's words in the Mosaic Covenant, Nehemiah is reminding, not like God forgot, but reminding the Lord in prayer of what the promise was. And that was that even if... even if God's people were scattered to the outermost parts of heaven, that if they repented, God would bring them back together. Nehemiah is reminding the Lord of that. So, my first principle of prayer, if you're taking notes, is that Nehemiah prayed the promises of God. Okay, Nehemiah prayed the promises of God. I'll try to unpack that a little bit. What does that look like? This isn't, just so you know, This isn't some sort of mystical activation of God's blessing through faith. This isn't like someone saying, if I believe that I'm gonna be wealthy and rich, then God's gonna bless me with that because I have enough faith. Okay, that's not what this is saying. That's not what I'm saying. Praying the promises of God doesn't mean if I declare it, then it's there, okay? What this does mean is that God's word does not return void. That God's promises will happen, that he will carry them out. His checks don't bounce, right? Declaring the promises of God and praying the promises of God is not reminding God that he promised. It's not somehow saying, if I have enough faith, then God will do what he promised to do. It's actually for our benefit. It's actually saying, Lord, I believe in what you promised. I believe that you're gonna fulfill it. Now, if you guys have your Bibles real quick, flip to Ephesians in the New Testament. Uh, We're gonna be going through Ephesians on Sundays starting in two weeks. It's probably my favorite book of the Bible, so I'm excited. Um, Ephesians chapter one. If you guys don't know, much like Galatians, this was a letter. Paul wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus. Paul was sort of this father figure to the Ephesians. He uh, was the first one to bring the gospel to them, planted the church there. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he gives us a little window into what he prays for them for. And this is kind of interesting. We're talking about the topic of prayer here. And it's kind of cool to get to see what did Paul pray for his church for? What did he pray for them specifically? So in verse 15 of chapter one, he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers. Okay, and then verse 17, he tells us what he prays for them. It says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now Paul says a lot of things that he prays for them in there, but none of them have to do with action. All of them have to do with understanding. Do you notice that? Look at it again. 
says, I do not cease to pray for you. What? That the Father of glory would give you a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, of knowledge of him, having your eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Paul's prayer, the very essence of it, is entirely about them knowing something. It's not, I pray that you guys would be really good. It's not, I pray that you guys would just make it. I pray that you guys wouldn't blow it. I pray you guys wouldn't screw it up. You guys wouldn't fight with each other. I'm sure he prayed some of that stuff too, for sure. But what Paul says that he primarily prays for them for is that they would know and understand what? The promises of God. That they would believe that God is good for what he says. That God's gonna do what he said he's gonna do. That's his prayer. That the eyes of their heart would be open to know and to understand the fullness of the knowledge of God. To see what he's doing, what he's done. What he's gonna do and to believe it. That's his prayer. That they would believe the promises of God. Kind of interesting. Let me ask, I ask you guys a question. Do you think of the promises of God as fulfilled or do you think of them as pending? I, this is something I just, today I was really pondering in my own heart. Do I live like, do I think like, do I act like the promises of God that he made are fulfilled or that they're still kind of sort of floating out there and it's kind of the jury's out? Yeah? Because some of them are, right? Some of God's promises are still um, to come, right? But ultimately, the ones that matter, can I just say this, are fulfilled. Did you know that? They're fulfilled in a person. They're fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So do I live like the promises of God are sort of still floating out there, like Israel had to for thousands of years? Like God said he's gonna send this Messiah that's gonna come and, and gonna save us and all this stuff, but that's not the age we live in. The promises of God ultimately are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. When he went to the cross, he made good God's promises. He did. He fulfilled the promises of God. And now we, as the church, as the new covenant believers, should not be walking around as in God's promises are still out in escrow or still waiting to be fulfilled, but we can believe and have faith and have assurance because they've been fulfilled in Christ. It happened. Look at Ephesians 1.11. If you're still there, just go to the left a little bit. Paul says, in him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose, so on and so forth. But the point is, is he doesn't say in him we will obtain, right? He doesn't say in him we're gonna, etc. He says in him we have obtained an inheritance. That's kind of interesting, right? It's not like God promised that we're gonna have this inheritance and God promised that we're gonna have this salvation. God promised everything's gonna work out, but it's all later. We just gotta trust it's gonna happen. No, it's actually already there. We've already obtained it. You say, well, that's confusing. Why am I still going to work? And why am I not in heaven, Right? Historically, yes, things are playing out. But in God's economy, in God's time zone, it's done. It's finished. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes I get terrified. I'm like, man, what if I blow this thing? What if I totally go off the rails? Totally screw up? What if I totally, I mean, I just like totally mess up? What's, what's going to happen? Well, and I remember like, wait a minute. Before the foundations of the earth, Christ went to the cross. Okay, I mean, this thing is accomplished. It's fulfilled. I'm saved. I'm saved. That is done, and the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ, and I can believe that. And even though we're still walking out this thing called time that God lives outside of, in his perspective, we've already obtained it. We're already finished. We're already completed in his perspective. Isn't that kind of cool to think about? It's not like he's going to be surprised when you blow it. 
It's not like he's going to be surprised when you go through seasons of wavering. Like, in his mind, he's already got you. He's already got you there. The promises are fulfilled in Christ. It is what? On the cross, he said it is finished. That's kind of interesting, right? If Christ went to the cross, but then we're still waiting around hoping that God's promises are going to be fulfilled, why would he say that? No, it was finished on the cross. Everything that you need for life and godliness is now available to you. The Spirit is here. We're still playing out time. We're still playing out history. But ultimately, God's promises are fulfilled in Christ, which is exciting for me to think about. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things, which is cool, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Listen to this. By which he has granted to us is precious and very great promises. And then he says, so that through those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. It tells me that one of God's ultimate things for us is that we would just believe what he's already done. Not just believe what he's gonna do. We know he's gonna come back. We know he's gonna rule and reign. We know there's things to come. But ultimately that we would believe that he's already fulfilled his promises. That he's already made good on his checks and he did it on Christ, in Christ Jesus. And it says literally that his precious and great promises, through them we become partakers of the divine nature. Through the promises, through believing what he's already done. Not just what he's going to do, but what he's already done. That's exciting. Okay, so some of you guys are like, Sam, your head is in the clouds. What are you talking about? Let me just try to make it practical here, okay? What does that look like? Okay, what's, what's the application there? How do, I, how do I pray promises? How do I live promises? How do I think about promises? Um, first of all, I think we need to preach the gospel to ourselves more than we do. Like whatever it takes to get the gospel into your head, do it. Okay, if that means listening to sermons, listen to sermons. If that means um, taking verses that are specifically at the promises of God and memorizing, then do that. Whatever it takes. I, I forget the gospel in about five seconds. Like, what do you mean, Sam? No, I seriously do. Because everything in me is wired to want to save myself. Okay? Everything in me is wired to be a legalistic, uh, moralistic, people-pleasing sinner. Everything in me is wired to be opposite of the gospel. And every five seconds, I forget what God's done for me. And every five seconds, I need to remind myself that all of my worth and all of my weight and all of my value and all of my hope is in him. And it doesn't start with what I do. It starts with what he did for me. And I've got to remind myself of his promises, not just that they're coming, but that they're fulfilled. That this baby's done. Jesus bought our freedom. It's paid for. It is finished. We're not in heaven, but as far as God's concerned, we're in heaven. I mean, we're, not, we're there. <laughs> we're just playing out this thing. God has some things he wants to work on, some sanctification he wants to happen. But ultimately, man, I need to remind myself of that. I need to speak promises over myself. I need to preach promises to myself. I need to sing promises over my life. I need to read promises daily. Whatever that looks like to remind yourself of what he's done for you, we need to do that. It's funny, my, my, my wife and I went through the season where she was just having a, a really hard time in a season of, of not feeling like God loved her. You know, you guys feel like that? I feel like that all the time. I have these seasons where I'm like, God, there's no way God really loves me. If he, does, he loves me, he doesn't like me, right? I mean, I just, we all go through those seasons. I remember having this conversation with her, and, 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 I, and I just kind of told her, I'm like, maybe you need a season of really just looking at the promises of God. Because there's so many in here. I mean, this thing is just like, God does not write small checks. Did you know that? He has big promises, 
big, I'm building mansion for you in heaven. I'm paying for sin and for death. I'm gonna rise from the grave. I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna build the church. I mean, these are big promises that Jesus made and he's made good on them. And sometimes we just need to make a, take a season and just think about those, okay? Sometimes we need to put away that, man, I need to be fasting. Man, I need to be praying. Man, I need to be doing all this stuff. Yeah, that's all good stuff. But sometimes we just need to root ourselves and plant ourselves in the promises of God. And my wife did that and it really helped. It really helped her out. Just, I think she just started writing verses all over the house. There's like note cards here, note cards there, and like sticky notes here and sticky notes there. It's awesome, just promises of God, his faithfulness, his goodness. We need it. We need to remember it constantly. And the third thing I would say about this is think big thoughts. Get lost in God's size. We're, we're gonna go through Ephesians in a few weeks. I'm telling you guys, Ephesians 1 will blow your mind, okay? I mean, Paul talks about stuff in there that I just don't even understand. I've sat time and time again with friends and we've opened it up and said, what does this mean? And commentaries and man, this is huge. God, his salvation plan is so complex. His glory is so complex. Think big. Get out there and think about the greatness and the sovereignty of God. And when you do that, it's easier to believe his promises because you realize how big he is and you realize that he's powerful to deliver on those promises. So that's the first principle of prayer. Let's look at verse 10 for the second one. Nehemiah one ten. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Okay, again, Nehemiah praying to the Lord. He says to the Lord, they, okay, your people are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power. So what Nehemiah is doing here is he's drawing attention in his heart and to this prayer in the Lord, attention back to what God's done in the past. Nehemiah knows, because he knows his history. He's a good Jewish boy. He knows that God has redeemed and restored and freed and done amazing and miraculous things for Israel in the past. And he says, God, you've done this before. I know you did it before. Will you do it again? Okay, so my second principle of prayer is that you need to remember the good works that God has done in your life. You need to remember those things. John Piper had this really good analogy one time. It's just always stuck with me. And he was talking about, about grace, okay? He was talking about how grace is sort of like standing in the middle of this giant river, okay? You're standing in the middle and there's water all around you. And the water sort of represents the grace, okay? And you look up ahead on the river and you see all this water that in, in a matter of, you know, minutes or seconds or whatever is going to be all around you. And you see that that's future grace, that's the grace that is coming your way, okay? The promises of God. This is what the Lord's gonna do. This is what he's promised that he's gonna do. And we look forward and we worship God for future grace. And then you look around you and you see this is present grace. This is the grace that I'm in right now. Man, God has been so good to me. Look at my kids, look at my marriage, look at my job. Praise the Lord um, for what he's doing right now. Let's worship God for present grace. But then you turn around and you look behind you. And what do you see? all the water that's passed by you, right? And you look and you say, God, I just worship you for the past grace, for the grace that you gave me five years ago, the grace that you gave me 10 minutes ago, the grace that you gave me when I got saved, the grace that you gave me before I got saved, that led me to get saved, past grace, right? We need to remember sometimes what the Lord has done in our past. We need to remember that. We can't forget that. You know, in Israel, finally, after wandering in the desert for 40 years, uh, and that whole generation of unbelievers uh, and, and, and complainers uh, died off, um, God said, okay, it's time. 
I'm going to take this generation into the promised land. And I don't know if you guys know this, but he actually parted the Jordan for them. We don't think about that a lot because we always think of the Red Sea. Kind of, kind of uh, seems like a bigger deal. But he parted the Jordan River so that they could walk through. And once they got through to the other side, he told them specifically to take 12 stones. You guys read this story? 12 stones. And, and on those stones to inscribe the different 12 tribes of Israel. And to put a pile of 12 stones in the middle of the river. And to put a pile of 12 stones on one side of the river. And why did he do that? It seems random, right? He wanted Israel to remember from generation to generation to generation when they're walking by that pile of stones, why that stones, those stones were there. It was to remember the grace of God. It was to remember the faithfulness of God, that he delivered them, that he parted the Jordan and allowed them to walk through on dry ground so that they could go in and claim the promised land. He wanted them to remember his faithfulness. That's why he did it. And we need to have those pile of rocks in our life. We need to have those things that we can look back on and say, man, God, you have been so faithful to me. Look at the past grace. Look at all the things that have passed by me and that have been God's grace in my life. I mean, some of you guys in here would just have so many stories of God's past grace, right? We need to remember those things. So what does that look like practically? Some people, I think, you know, like journaling is is important. My wife's so good at journaling. She's got boxes of journals. I mean, just like boxes of God's faithfulness, like boxes of God's past grace. Man, this is how he's worked, worked in my life. I, I'm not so much into that, but what I do have is I have, I have tons of sermons that I've preached. This is fun. I'll pull out sermons from years ago, and I'm like, oh, my theology was horrible. No, I'll, I'll pull it out, and I'll, and I'll be like, man, that was so cool. God was teaching me that, and oh, that was so cool. God was working in me in that, um, and just, just mile markers and milestones of God's grace in my life. If God does something cool, write it down, because you're going to forget it's like communicating to your bonehead future self, right? When you're in moments of, of, of where, man, God is so good and he's so faithful and in two years I'm gonna forget that so I need to like write a letter to myself to remind myself of God's faithfulness now. That's what Israel did, right? They forgot over and over again that God was faithful. We need those things to remind us. So maybe it's writing down in a journal, I don't know, whatever it is. Um, secondly, I would say, uh, give your testimony often. Okay, and that doesn't always mean like I'm gonna do it in front of like a big group. Sometimes that just means in conversation. So maybe that's in your huddle group. Maybe you tell your huddle group leader, I wanna give my testimony or whatever that is. Maybe it's just with your friends or, or with your kids or with your, your spouse or whatever, but talk about how you got saved. That's exciting. Like that's a cool thing. We need to be reminded constantly of when we came to the Lord and how he brought us to him and how we were overwhelmed by his grace um, through our testimony. Uh, for me, I, I have specific things in my life that I, I sort of keep as mile markers, like certain songs, like the song I got saved to is huge for me. Sometimes I listen to that, it just reminds me of God's faithfulness in my past. Sometimes that's uh, places, you know, I have places where I've just had moments with the Lord that were amazing, where I've experienced his grace and I can go back to those places and just be reminded of that. Um, the last thing I would say even in that is look at God's grace and sovereignty in your generational story. Some, some of you guys might be like, man, my dad was an alcoholic. He beat my mom. He left. He went out. My family is jacked up. I don't know my parents. All that kind of stuff. Despite all of that, you can look back at your generational, your, gener- your generations. You can look back at your parents, your grandparents, and see how God used all of that. We just had a conversation with a couple last night, and we were just talking about, you know, what's your relationship with your parents, and what's your relationship with your parents, and even through the garbage, even through the hard stuff, you could still see how God used their folks to lead them to the Lord. Um, even the ones that weren't Christians, you know, God's grace manifests itself so many ways in our past life. I think we need to look at those things. For me, my, my, my parents were Christians and my, my uh, 
parents, parents were Christians. Uh, my, my, my dad's parents were missionaries in uh, Okinawa, and that's such a cool testimony. When I talk to them, it's so cool to see God's grace. I mean, he was working in them years and years and years ago, and see it in my parents, and then to see it in my life. I mean, I owe so much to my family. So that's a great way to look back and see God's past grace. And then lastly, um, in verse 11, we'll get to the third principle of prayer. Verse 11 says, he says in this prayer, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. He says, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So it's kind of interesting because at the end of this prayer, Nehemiah says, Lord, would you grant mercy favor in the sight of this man. Well, who's this man? We tags on the end, now I was the cupbearer of the king. So what he's saying is, he says, Lord, will you give me favor in the eyes of essentially the most powerful man in the ancient world at that time, King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire, okay? The guy that I'm cupbearing for, Lord, would you give me favor in this guy's eyes to go back and to do what the Lord's put on my heart? Now, what I love about that and what my third principle is, is that, Nehemiah ascribed the Lord as the sovereign of the sovereigns, okay? We have to remember that when we pray to the Lord. We have to remember that when we live out our lives is that God is the sovereign of the sovereigns. Okay, now it seems easy to kind of sit back in the armchair um, and, and sort of pontificate about, well, yeah, obviously God's bigger than King Artaxerxes, but when you were in that place, the most powerful person in the entire world, you may not, actually be that clear about, uh, I need to go pray about this first. And the reality is, is, if he had good standing with him, if he had good standing with the king, he probably could have just gone right to him and said, hey, I want to go rebuild the, the walls in Jerusalem. Are you cool with that? And it may have worked out good. But what I love about Nehemiah's prayer is that he goes to God first. Okay? Even though he already had favor in the eyes of Artaxerxes, even though he probably could have gone and got what he was hoping to get uh, without praying, he acknowledges through this prayer that God is the sovereign of the sovereigns, that God is above all kings, that God is above the most powerful, everything, which I love that, and I'm horrible at, okay? Can I just say that? I don't do this. I, I don't at all. This is how this thing works out in my life, okay? Um, as soon as stuff gets in my life, as soon as stuff goes bad, stuff goes sour, I immediately run to anything and everything besides prayer. <laughs> and then usually it's like the second or third thing that I get to. Okay, just to be honest with you guys, it's, that's ultimately usually what happens. Like I threw my back out really bad a few weeks ago. And the first thing I did is I, I got to call the chiropractor. I got to get this figured out, get this figured out. And those are all good things. I'm glad I did that. But I didn't even think to just pray first. God, you're, you're sovereign over my back. You know what I mean? Um, Stuff comes up politically, right? We're irritated with what our president's doing. We're irritated with what this is happening or what this country is doing. And we just begin to talk about it and obsess about it. And praying about it is usually not the first thing we think to do. But the problem with that is that it shows a condition of my heart, shows a condition of our heart that we think of God as not necessarily being sovereign over those things. Theologically, we know he is, right? But if we really think he's sovereign over everything in our life, then the first thing we would always do would be to ask him, Right? If we really thought he was in control of every issue, every uh, problem that comes up in our life, the first place we would run would be to the sovereign of sovereigns, but we don't. We don't. I don't. When I see an opportunity come up or something happens, I do everything I can to work uh, hard to get to that opportunity, and usually prayer is somewhere down in the, in, in the line, just being completely honest. Which means, which tells me that in my heart, there's an issue there where I think that maybe either God's not interested in that, 
or maybe I just see these things as more powerful than him. Because if I saw him as more powerful, I would go to him, right? If I saw him as the one that was really gonna, really gonna be there for me and really uh, ultimately even can control even the most powerful man in the world, then I would go straight to him, and I just don't. So just a couple quick things, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll head out for the night. I think this plays out relationally. I think that... Um, in any relationship, in every relationship, you have times where um, you're going to disagree, right? You have times where you're going to butt heads. And uh, I've seen, just to bring this to the practical, I've seen going to God first rather than having that argument, rather than um, trying to make your point, rather trying to drive your thing home, going to God first. I've seen firsthand that work out so good because you, have, you essentially have three options when you have conflict in a relationship. You can either get bitter and walk away and not deal with it. You can get bitter and stay there you know, and that doesn't do anything. Or you can pray to the one who's sovereign over the sovereigns and say, God, I'm gonna trust you to change, and this is key, whoever's wrong in this relationship, whether it be me or whether it be them. Now, my wife and I have seen this work. It's amazing. She does it better than I do, but when we don't, dis- when we don't agree on things, rather than, you know, just butt heads on it, rather than get bitter, rather than get frustrated, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll just pray about it, and God will literally change the heart of that person. You ever experienced that before? Like God will literally work on them without even having to say a word. Why? Because he's sovereign over that. Because he's bigger than that stuff. It literally works. And so whether it's in your relationship, whether it's with your sibling, whether your wife or your husband or your kids or whatever it is, I just encourage you guys, just a little bit of practical tonight in your prayer life to rather than just push and push and push and say I'm right and I'm right and they're wrong to actually go to God and say God will you fix this for me because guess what you're sovereign over these things you're bigger than this argument and will you correct whoever's wrong even if it's me and he always works it out he wants us to remember that he's bigger than these things and the last thing I would just say is whoever God's put over you whether it be your boss whether it be um, the president of the United States whoever it is that, that we're under can we just believe that God's bigger than we are in those things and say, you know what? God's in control of this country. God's in control of our leadership. You remember that, that time where Jesus was uh, out in the streets and someone, they were trying to catch him in his words and they said, so should we pay taxes to Caesar? Remember that? And he says, give me a coin. And he says, well, who's on the coin? And, and it was Caesar. He says, well, give it to Caesar. You know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And what Jesus is essentially saying there is he's saying, if that is his face on it, then give it to him. But you're made in the image of God. So you are God's ultimately, right? <laughs> and what's interesting about Jesus' view on politics is it's almost like he's like, can we just think bigger than that and realize that God is ultimately in, in charge? Pay your taxes. Do it. That's fine. God is the sovereign. Let's go to him. Let's turn to him before we turn to everything else. All right? You guys stand with me real quick. We're just going to pray this in and go enjoy the sunset. Lord, I'm just thankful tonight, God, for um, just you helping me get through this. Lord, you know my mind is just kind of scattered tonight. I just pray um, that a few of these things, Lord, would just sink into our hearts, God, that um, I pray that you would just richen our prayer lives, God. Uh, I know for me that's just an area that I struggle with, Lord, to, to look to you as being bigger and stronger than uh, the issues that I have. Lord, I pray that um, this church, God, that we would be those that um, share your past grace and our weaknesses often. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be those that uh, constantly proclaim your promises, that believe your promises, that see them as fulfilled, um, ultimately, God, and that 
Lord, we just love you tonight, Father. We're, we're thankful for your grace in our lives, God, and thankful for the book of Nehemiah. I'm just excited to, to get into it more, Lord, and uh, we just love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, have a great night.